This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. It's season four of Office Hours, and we're studying the book of Hebrews. The theme, Jesus is really better. Hebrews was most likely written in the mid-60s of the first century A.D. to a predominantly Jewish congregation that was being tempted to turn away from Christ back to the Old Covenant back to the types and shadows, and back to a rabbinical understanding of the Old Testament. We're in Hebrews chapter 2, and Joel Kim is with us as we continue our study of Hebrews. Joel is assistant professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. And before coming to Westminster, he served as a pastor in Los Angeles for a number of years. His doctoral research focuses on the history of the interpretation of Romans chapter 7, and he's co-editor of Always Reformed, Essays in Honor of W. Robert Godfrey, available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Joel, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. So here we are talking about Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to look today at verses 14 through 18, where the writer to the Hebrews says, as he always does, or maybe we should say pastor to the Hebrews, says, as he always does, a number of significant things that we want to consider with some care. In verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. There's a lot here. First of all, why is a sharing in flesh and blood so important pastorally in this context? Well, the author seems to imply, or at least assume, that Jesus becoming human and flesh and blood is a necessary part of God's plan for salvation. He implies that in verse 17 when he says he had to be made like his brothers and sisters. It's a necessity. And that necessity seems to result in two things that he mentions here. On the one hand, him becoming flesh and blood means that he can taste death for everyone, to borrow the language from verse 9, where he dies for his brother and sister according to the plan of God, so that, according to this verse coming up in verse 14 and 15, that he might deliver those who are in slavery. And so, on the one hand, part of the reason why he needs to share in the flesh and blood is that that's an assumed part of God's plan of salvation that leads to the destruction of the devil and deliverance for those who are in him. But the second part of it all seems also to be, later on in this same passage, he talks about Jesus Christ being merciful, uh, merciful to those who are brothers and sisters. And having himself suffered and was tempted, he is able to help those who are also tempted and are suffering as well. So for those two reasons, I think he seems to emphasize it. On the one hand, in order for him to save, he must die. In order for him to empathize, he also must have the form of flesh and blood, being tempted in exactly the same way as his brothers and sisters. Why is it so important for this congregation to understand that Jesus is truly human? For many of these believers in the first century to whom he writes, uh, they're struggling for a number of different reasons. It seems like there is a point at which they're abandoning their faith, or at least thinking about abandoning their faith, either because their initial enthusiasm has waned or because the delay of the return of Christ has created a crisis in their minds, or just as importantly, circumstantially speaking, they're under persecution. And just the fear of man and the fear of pain and suffering might produce in them some desire to walk away. Pressure from 
Jewish friends. Or from uh, within, for that matter, yeah. for uh, how this ought to be understood. I think whatever the environment and circumstance might be, he wants them to endure and persevere. That seems to be the main drive that he's driving toward. And the point that he wants to make is that Jesus is trustworthy because he's faithful and that Jesus understands because he himself is a sharer of the blood and the body of Christ to provide an encouragement to the first century believers who are struggling with their faith, who are struggling to maintain their faith, better understanding of who Christ is, as well as how faithful he is to us and how he identifies and understands us is an imperative. In the history of the church, it is not just the first century church that has struggled to hang on to Jesus' humanity. In the ancient world, there's always been a temptation to lose hold of Jesus' humanity. We know that the congregations in Asia Minor struggled with that. First John reflects on that. And that also happened in the medieval church where gradually Jesus became more distant and was portrayed to the church more as a king and less as an intercessor. It seems significant to me in light of that that Hebrews refers to him as brother. We'll talk about that for a moment. It seems like on the whole, when we're dealing with Christology, we struggle with two extremes, either thinking and emphasizing only his divinity or emphasizing or teaching only his humanity. And that extremes really dominate the discussion within the church in terms of some of the struggles that we find about Christ and his nature in the first few centuries. It is true, like you pointed out, that First John's concern seems to be that there are a variety of backgrounds who emphasize his divine nature primarily without emphasizing his human nature. I mean, you, you can understand why. I mean, philosophically in the first century, there were some who argued that the body is a really temporary, corrupt, and therefore just something to be kept for a time, but it really doesn't have any overall eternal spiritual value. And for someone to come as man and to be considered man, even worse so, dying as man, dying a, a death of a curse as a dying on a cross would have been unbelievable and worthy of rejection by many who or struggling with their faith in the first place. So yeah, I think the Christological heresies of the first few centuries are seen in the discussion here. This perhaps explains why in the Apostles' Creed, later on you realize that the middle portion which deals with the humanity of Jesus Christ is so emphasized. And not unlike that, here we have the teaching of the nature of Jesus Christ by the author of Hebrews, emphasizing his identification with his brothers and sisters, both in nature and all the temptations and any other attributes that you find in a human being. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And in contemporary evangelicalism, there has been a lot of emphasis on the deity of Jesus over against the critics of Scripture and uh, some of the old German liberals and Americans and Brits who've adopted some of those ideas in response to the critics of Jesus' deity and, and of the divinity of Scripture and so forth. Evangelicals have tended to emphasize his deity, and we haven't always been as comfortable talking about or thinking about his humanity, such that I know of one instance where an evangelical talked about Jesus after his ascension, unzipping his humanity and stepping out of it because he had no need of it anymore. Compare that way of thinking about Jesus' humanity to the way Hebrews thinks about it. 
the thrust of the argument that he's making still holds to this day, simply pointing out that Jesus has to be understood as both divine and human. And in fact, it was necessary for the plan of salvation of God that Jesus become human. And that humanity, like many other understanding of Scripture, obviously, but for us to properly understand Christ, his humanity does have to be emphasized. However, if I can just interject in this way, though, that not only do we see a popular forms that seem to exalt his divinity over against his humanity, we still do see, I feel like, unintended in many ways, where you emphasize his humanity over his divinity as well. That is, when you hear notions about Jesus Christ simply as our friend, someone that we caricature with human attributes and limitations. All these things, while I think meant well in these songs and prayers or any other discussions, it could create in those who hear and emphasize these things an understanding of nature of Christ that seems to undermine his divinity as well. So I think in many ways, the theological understanding of the natures of Christ that the Hebrews chapter 2 itself addresses are the same problems we face currently, both either overplaying his divinity or overplaying his humanity, where the balance and understanding of both seems necessary, not only according to our doctrines, but also according to the teaching here in Hebrews 2. So we need to steer somewhere between chummy familiarity and losing track of valuable truth, an essential truth, that God the Son took on humanity, and that he is, God the Son, in the flesh, is our brother, but he's a royal brother. Maybe that qualification helps us get some perspective. I don't know exactly how else we can improve upon the notion that he is indeed true human and truly divine. I think is probably the best way for us to understand Christ, and not minimizing either one of those two things, I think will be a better understanding, or at least seems to be scriptural understanding of the natures of Christ. Why is it so important for the pastor to the Hebrews to emphasize that Jesus went through death, that he suffered and went through death? What's the significance of that language here in this passage? Death, according to the author here, is the instrument. I mean, he uses the phrase instrumentation here, right? Through his death, that deemed fitting to really conquer the tyranny of the evil one and to conquer sin and death. As Hebrews articulates why Jesus is better. I mean, that's the theme of the whole series here. Jesus is better. And as he's articulating the fact that Jesus is better here, he goes back to the whole notion that's cultic in a number of ways, drawing attention upon the Old Testament understanding of how sin and our shortcomings were dealt with. And one of the things he keeps going back to is the sacrificial notion and using the blood of the animals and the death of the animals as a way of atoning for our sins. The argument going to be made by the author of Hebrews from this point on, though, is that Jesus and his death is like the death of the Old Testament sacrificial animals in the fact that it atones. But it's unlike the animals that were sacrificed because this atonement is for all and permanent. It is indeed better than any of the sacrificial systems that existed previously. So the death is important to the author of Hebrews because here it's what the recipients would have understood as the means by which sins were atoned. But in this case, Jesus's death, the means by which God's salvation is given to us, is eternal and permanent. So rather than death being an element of fear or slavery, it becomes a moment of great triumph of God in Christ. He says, destroy the evil one. And yet, these are people who are being tempted 
to turn away from Jesus and to turn away from the reality of the new covenant and to go back not only to Moses, but to a particular, namely rabbinical understanding of Moses. And so inasmuch as they're being tempted, and clearly that temptation isn't coming from Jesus, how are we to understand this destroying of the evil one? What kind of destruction does he have in mind? I don't think the word destroy here means some kind of annihilation or some kind of destruction, complete destruction of some kind. I think the word may be better understood as causing something to lose its power or effectiveness or or to render something ineffective. Because like you're pointing out, it's true that the author of Hebrews admits that there is an ongoing work of the devil that continues to tempt and test the Hebrews, or at least the recipients of this letter. What we're assuming here is that what God has done in Christ is to make the whole work of the evil one ineffective. He's rendered helpless. Maybe the best image to give is a dog who can be the most scary dog. He's leashed. And so the dog can continue by his barking, produce in us fear, make us sweat, but he's leashed. There's absolutely no way that dog can now overwhelm or overcome those who are in Christ. I wonder if that's an analogy that might work here, that what he's done is not necessarily the complete annihilation of the evil one. That's to come because the implication is the process has begun. It hasn't been completed. But even now, he's rendered ineffective by the work of Christ. I like that because it does get us to verse 15, where he says, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So there is a connection in those two verses between the objective, what Jesus has accomplished, and the subjective consequences for those of us who believe in Jesus and who are struggling with temptation, in this case, the temptation to apostatize and doubt and fear. Yeah, no, I I think you're exactly right. Verses 14 and 15 work off two clauses. One dealing with the destruction of the power of death and the devil. And then second one, deliverance from fear of death and death producing in us this ongoing, lifelong, as it says, slavery that's involved. It does both of those elements in a very effective way, obviously. There's nothing here, is there, about a ransom being paid by Jesus or by the Son or by God to the devil? Is there any notion like that here? I don't think that's what he has in mind here, nor is there a notion that's found, at least in the text that we have here. He simply talks about overcoming and destruction, and nothing more is implied by the text as far as we can tell. Ordinarily, when you're paying a ransom, you're not killing people. You assume that there is an equality that's involved. I don't think the author of Hebrews at any point begins with that assumption and that there is this duality that's taking place and that one has to pay off the other in order for something to actually happen. And then he goes back to angels, which has been one of the themes that he's been on. And there are different ways of understanding it. It may be the congregation is being tempted to give undue attention to angels. That's what I think. As Dennis and I talked about this theme, he wasn't as sure that was necessarily in view. So there are different ways of understanding this. I'm right, of course. (laughs) Anyway, uh, that's the difficulty of reconstructing the original circumstances. But he does make a contrast in verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but the offspring or the seed of Abraham. What's the contrast there between angels and Abraham's offspring or seed? 
I think most people would consider this a bit of a parenthetical statement, and I think the emphasis is on the second half rather than the first. The first half seems to be focusing upon a topic previously discussed about angels and Jesus having been for a short time lower than the angels and the attention given to that angelic realm. But the point seems to be far less about angels or what the identity is. But the simple issue is that Christ identifies with those who share with him in flesh and blood, and of course the point being made in verse 16 is the fact that he helps the offspring of Abraham. And that helps can be variously translated, but he holds on to, again, the notion of confidence and perseverance coming through here, uh, that Christ himself considers the offspring and the seed of Abraham to be the object of his care and concern, seems to be the emphasis in verse 16. Who are Abraham's seed here? I think we have to understand that phrase to mean not just ethnically related to Abraham, but that broadly means all the people of God, including those who have come in faith into the family of God. On what basis do you say that? I agree with you, but why do you say that? There are a number of ways that people have taken this phrase and dealt with this in terms of trying to articulate a reasoning for it, but for a couple of different reasons. One is, at least contextually speaking, when he talks now about chapter 3 and on, talking about the object of Christ's affection and care and help, it comes back to the notion of household of God or the house of God, all understood to include the people who are part of the church, to which not only Moses belongs, but to which all individuals, including those described in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, are involved. And so I don't think the object of Christ's affection and care changes necessarily in the verses that we have here, and it seems to be consistently referring to the church as a whole, including those who are receiving this letter now. And secondarily, I think elsewhere, when you look at places like, for instance, with Paul, there is a New Testament consistency in terms of using that phrase, not necessarily just for ethnic Israel, but all those who come into the family of God through Christ. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals, since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced, historically, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, until now. R.C. Sproul. For Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His gospel, and His church. In his 2010 commentary, P.T. O'Brien takes that same approach. As he describes the seed of Israel, it refers not only to Israel's ancestors, but also to the Christian community, that is, believing Jews and believing Gentiles. And he appeals to Hebrews 11, 39 through 40, Galatians 3, 29, and then very helpfully Romans 4, 13 and 16. It's pretty clear in the New Testament that a Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly. And as Paul describes the Christian congregation in Galatians 6 as the Israel of God, And so one is a Jew who is united to Jesus, who in the New Testament is the Israel of God. As a big fan of P.T. O'Brien anyways, I wouldn't disagree with him anyways, (laughs) but since he agrees with me, that makes it even better. Exactly. Verse 17, 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Now, chapter 4 is going to repeat that right and modify that so we won't get ahead. We'll save that for chapter 4. Very good. So that he might be or might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Well, there's a lot there in verse 17. What does it mean, again, to be made like his brothers in every respect? This is clearly something that he really wants them to understand. It seems like the author of Hebrews is concerned not only to emphasize for us that the nature of Christ is identical to us, but furthermore, that the experience of Christ is identical to us. That is, in every way, he lived in a way that we would understand. He was tempted like we were. He suffered as any human being would. All those things to imply to us that Jesus, not only in his nature, but in his experience, are like us. And he's still like us. And he's still like us. We have a high priest in the heavens, in the, in the Holy of Holies, according to Hebrews, at the right hand of the Father, who is interceding for us. And so one of us is there. And, and I get the sense that this congregation particularly is tempted to think that having ascended, Jesus has gone away and he's apart from us, he's separate from us, and he's so transcendent that he's not really with or for us anymore. And Hebrews wants to overturn that and say, no, wait a minute, that's completely backwards. I do think that this is important for the first century church, for them to hear over and over again. I mean, later on in chapter 3, he begins by saying, consider Jesus. Here, we are to think about him in light of our current circumstance and situation to gain the kind of strength and encouragement that we require. And part of that is because, you know, as he points out here in verse 17, Jesus is merciful and faithful high priest. But in speaking of his mercy and faithfulness, it's not a generic, hypothetical, or theoretical statement. The reason he is merciful and faithful is because he knows us. He identifies with us. He understands us. I think it speaks volumes even to us now when later on in chapter 4, he talks about our high priest in a very similar fashion as someone who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect, again, the same phrase, has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This notion of Christ's identification with his people and his understanding of us and his faithfulness and his care for us become the basis for his confident encouragement to the first century believers who are struggling. So yeah, I, I do think it has a very important pastoral implications for those who are receiving. And they're tempted to go back to a priest. Now, this is before 70 AD, so probably before 67, so before the war in Jerusalem and in Palestine more broadly. And so the temple is still standing. The priesthood is still functioning, albeit very imperfectly, right? And so he's setting up a contrast between an infallible, though truly human priest who's with us, like us, and the priest to whom we should look in contrast with an earthly priest who had political power, influence, wore clothing that was impressive. Talk about that. I think you can look at it two ways. On the one hand, I guess you can look at the contrast between the kind of cultic individuals and activities that were taking place then. When you say cultic, what do you mean? I mean like the temple orient. There's the temple, sacrifices, the high priest, all the elements that are part of the sacrificial system of the first century. And so on the one hand, you can say it's a contrast between what is imperfectly done then versus what's perfectly done in Christ. So it could be, on the one hand, a criticism of the imperfection that people are turning back to. Another way to look at it is even if you don't criticize the cultic activities and the whole sacrifice, Official system. He's simply pointing out that's 
in the past. Mm. Those are things of the past. I mean, as he's making the contrast of Jesus is better, he's not necessarily saying that those things in the past were necessarily bad, but that it was temporary is the point. And there is this tension for many wanting to go back to the old when the new has already come. It always reminds me of what happens in Joshua 24, where having entered into the promised land, Joshua brings all the people together. And there's this famous verse that a lot of people turn to these days. But when he talks about the fact that you could follow God, Yahweh, right? As me and my household, we will serve the Lord, he says. And then he says in almost a half-mocking voice, or you can follow the gods of your forefathers. Implied in that statement is the ones that already just were all destroyed in coming into the promised land. And so the contrast is between here is something that's better, something new. Here Christ has fulfilled all these things, and yet you are insisting on going back to the old ways, which were mere shadows and temporary solutions to the problem. And even if you look at it as a pejorative thing, that when you contrast it to what's going on now, that these things are done imperfectly. However you look at it, the point is the new is better, and we need to focus on the new. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We're always, even now, tempted to go in different directions and to look for some sort of alternative to Jesus that is socially approved, that's influential, or that's already been replaced I mean, it's not as if the first century Christians were the only ones being tempted to turn away from the finished work of Jesus to ongoing sacrifices. It's difficult to make one-to-one correspondences on any of these things, and perhaps care needs to be practiced in terms of making any, let's say, specific references. But yeah, I think it's true. I mean, there are ways where we, like the Israelites in the wilderness, like the old way better. It was more comfortable. It seemed more visible. It seemed more tangible. It seemed like it involved us uh, much more so. I mean, James Boyce had this great little illustration of a mountain climber climbing, misstepped, and was falling down and grabbed onto the only branch coming off the side of this cliff. And as he looked down and looked up, he yelled out, supposedly, as the story goes, is there anyone who can help me? And there was this great baritone voice coming on high. God's voice, I guess, is always this bass or baritone saying, I am God. I will help you. And he says, God, please help me. And God says, I will help you. Let go of the bush or something of that nature. And he looks up again. He looks down. He looks back up and he's thinking and he says, is there anyone else who can help me? (laughs) Which is a great way to illustrate how we're incorrigibly self-righteous or self-salvation is really what we're geared for. And in that sense, this kind of tangible, visible participation in the work of salvation is something that I think even now many of us are tempted by and tempted to go back to. In verse 17, he uses this word and idea to propitiate. What does that mean, propitiate? This is a tough term, obviously, in the New Testament, as it's being translated, it gets variously translated because you have a problem in the Greek as to what that means. You have the Latinized English of it. That's also confusing. So in the original, you know, we're struggling through what that word means. And in the English, even if you find the equivalent, they're not easy for us. And this is why the translations variously say propitiation, reconciliation, atonement, expiation. These are all terminologies that English translations have used to indicate what's going on here. Well, the simple notion seems to be that there is for sure a covering and forgiving of sin involved. The debate has been whether there's also the turning aside of divine wrath that's involved. Because what propitiation has in mind, unlike, let's say, expiation, which only has the cleansing of sin 
in view. Propitiation as a terminology has in mind the notion of not only of cleansing of sin, but turning away of divine disfavor or divine wrath. And I think what we're saying in translation here and focusing on propitiation is that Christ, by his death and sacrifice, not only cleansed us from our sins, but that he delivers his brothers and sisters from judgment because the wrath of God has been averted. And propitiation covers both of those. The debate has always been whether we should limit it to expiation or propitiation or sacrifice of atonement and others. I kind of like the original New Living Translation translation, which came out in 96, which was later revised, where in commenting on Romans 3.25, this is how he translated it. Initially, when it said, for God sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to satisfy God's anger against us. I realize that's a very elongated way which we're summarizing under the word propitiation, but I think that rightly gets the point across. So it's a complex word that carries more than one sense at the same time. It is interesting, and I, I, I was surprised a little bit to see again that it's he does say to propitiate the sins of the people you'd almost expect him to say to expiate which is sometimes a different word and nevertheless it seems that he has here embedded in the word the idea of turning away the wrath of god particularly if you look at the septuagint that is the greek translation of the old testament the preponderance of usage seems to favor this notion of turning away the divine wrath the same greek word behind that could be translated propitiation or expiation oh, yes, obviously yes. and so in that the debate is ongoing you know unlike loanida which is one of the greek lexicons which has an interesting theological statement i mean it's not a lexical statement it's a theological statement that says since in the new testament god is always on the side of his people Turning away his wrath seems like an ungodly way of looking at things, or at least I'm paraphrasing, obviously, that by the theology of the editors of Loanida, such a notion of turning away the wrath of God seems impossible yeah. in light of how we see God. But I, I, I don't know if I read the New Testament God the same way. The wrath and anger of God is not unseen in the New Testament, first of all. And not only that, we see even throughout the book of Hebrews, the notion of this condemnation and judgment of God is real and present. And that what Christ has done in his death is that he not only takes away the sin, which takes away any hindrances in our, our reconciled relationship with God, but that by his death, it turns away the wrath and judgment of God that has been reserved for those who are sinners before him. So I do think it's a complex term, not only in the original, but also in English. But it contains both of those elements of cleansing of sin, as well as turning away God's wrath. The last verse of the section, because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Pastor Joel, I, I love Jesus, but I'm getting a lot of pressure from my friends, and life would be so much simpler. My employer would be happier with me. My family would be happier with me. I mean, they don't mind that I'm religious, but that I identify so closely with Jesus is, is really beginning to get in the way of my relationships help me with this. How does this verse help me, Pastor, to navigate my daily life? Because if I adopted a form of Judaism, or in some communities, if I adopted a form of Islam, I would still be religious, and I would still be honoring Jesus, but I, I, I don't think I'd have the same tension with people as I do being a Christian. I think the verse here reminds us of two elements that are important for us as we think through this more pastorally and pragmatically. On the one hand, I realize that this may not be earth-shattering to anyone, as we've talked about this earlier, is that Jesus knows. Jesus understands. 
that Jesus empathizes because he himself suffered and was tempted as we were. Now, maybe that doesn't speak volumes to everyone, but I think it does speak volumes to someone like me, when not only that, Christ is someone who is simply transcendent God, the holy other, who cannot understand and who does not understand what we go through, but he has himself gone through it perfectly and sinlessly, and he understands exactly how I feel. But that's not just an esoteric statement that he understands, but that he identifies with us. And I think that should encourage us that here is a God who is transcended, yet with us and understands us. But the point in this verse, which I think speaks volumes to me, is what he says in the second half when he simply says, not only does he understand when we're tempted, he is able to help. The thrust of this verse, he is able to help. Not only he's able to say, you know what, I understand how you feel, which may mean something to some of us, but may not mean a whole lot to a lot of us. But he not only says, I understand, but that he says, Not only because I understand, but because I am who I am, a faithful and merciful high priest to you, that I am able to help you. And implied in this, I think, is to point that he is the only one who is able to help. You may think that as a human being, you know, our wisdom is so limited often. Perhaps we think that there are better solutions apart from Christ to many of the woes and pains of both our faith and the consistency of our faith in our daily living. But what Hebrews and the author of Hebrews seems to point out simply is, no, those are all misguided. You may think so, but your wisdom, really, it's limited. Christ says he understands. And not only does he say so, he tells us that he's able to help us in our times of difficulty who are being tempted. And he's the only one who is able to help. And I guess our encouragement to ourselves, to others, is to say, we need to turn to Jesus. Really, I mean, there's really no other way around it. Perhaps it's unfair for me to bring Paul back into this equation again, because he's obviously not the author of Hebrews, no matter what people might have said earlier. But, you know, Colossians goes out this way, fledgling church in Colossae, trying to figure out how to live out their faith. And the whole theme of Colossians is, you know, Jesus is supreme. You could have many other religions that can compete, whether it be syncretistic religion of old or any other competing religions. But at the end of the day, Jesus is supreme. You know, it's like the book of Revelation. We can debate all we want about the various elements and details of what's taking place. But at the end, the theme of Revelation is that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. It's such an encouragement to believers to recognize our God, who is the creator of all things, redeemer, is really present with us in our lives to know how we feel and what we go through. But not only that, he's able to help us to overcome. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.